Hello and welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. My name's Darren and I'm here with Faith. Hi. Pastor Faith. And we will get to the sermon in just a little bit, but we wanted to make some time and space to talk about something special that we've been having on Sundays. And it's a new song that Pastor Faith, you and your husband, Josh, wrote, and we've shared it with our community. Tell us a little bit about it. What's the name of it? Yeah. And where did it come from? Yeah, so it's called We Need You. Um, and I, I'm going to root this in 1 Corinthians 2 when Paul says, My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Um, the, the first thing that was written for this song was the beginning of that bridge section that says, We don't need better plans. We don't need clever thoughts. We need your Spirit, O oh God. We don't want the wisdom of man. We want we want a display of God's power, which is really what the world needs. They don't need to see a show, or even in the area of worship, they don't need to hear good music. We need to see a display of the power of God. So it came from that heart cry. And then the beginning of the song kind of sets up this space where we invite Holy Spirit, we open our hearts, we clear out all the distractions, the things that get in the way and then just simply cry out for more of Him. And it's this this longing to be a, a space where the Spirit would rest mm-hmm. as a community. Yeah, I love that. That's such a the heart and core value of Garden Church. Exactly. Knowing that the Spirit is present, like He's welcome to the party and we get to celebrate. And I so appreciate the beauty and creativity that you've been cultivating, not only with worship, but just something that we can invite the rest of our community into. And, and it's so cool when, when uh, in the recording of this song, it's the first time that we shared it. And it's like people have been singing it for weeks. <laughs> and it was just such a cool thing to experience. And so we're so happy for those of you that have experienced that with us on a Sunday morning. And we want to see just more original songs being birthed from this place um, that you're talking about, just being saturated in the Holy Spirit. So we are welcoming you to stick around after the sermon where you can hear a live recording of the song, We Need You, and I hope it blesses your heart. Garden Church Podcast. We started a series last week called Kingdom Culture, and we are looking at exploring the primary message of Jesus, which was the kingdom of God. And so if you missed last week, last week we, we started off with the Gospel of Mark chapter 1. So I want to read that real quick. If you have a Bible, let's go to Mark chapter 1, and we're going to look at verse 14 and 15. Um, and if you don't have a Bible, there are some Bibles in the back, or you can download an app, version, or there are so many different Bibles online. But you need a Bible today because um, I'm going to preach the Word of God today, and I'm actually really excited. I'm going to give you uh, this whole Old Testament survey, and I'll tell you why in a second, and I'm going to pray after I read this and after I do a quick summary. Um, but I realized that as a church, there's a lot of new people in our community. First service is completely filled. There's no parking. I keep telling more people to come to this service because there's a little bit of room here, um, which is great. But we have been growing. And um, what, for us as a church, we do what we do because of a theology that we carry as a leadership, as a staff, as house church leaders, as elders, as a church. And that theology has been shaped by the kingdom of God more than anything else. And I, I realize that many of us don't have that same understanding. And I want to train our church. I want to build um, a theology that's, that's ripe and healthy and holistic to the narrative of all of the scriptures, which will make sense in a little bit. Um, but let's just look at this verse, Mark chapter 1, verse 14. Uh, after John was put into prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. So the word for good news is gospel. And last week, we, I, I did a, ser- a sermon called The Gospel or the Good News According to Jesus. And what did Jesus mean by good news? Many of us think that Jesus' message to the church or to all the earth, everyone on earth, was to believe the right things about God so that when you die, and, or the end of the world comes, you go to a place called heaven, right? That's, that's most of our, our view of theology, that Jesus comes to, to teach us to pray a prayer and maybe get a little bit of our life together, but the real action happens when we go to the other place called heaven. It's the gospel of salvation. Many of us have heard this, and there's nothing wrong with it except that it's incomplete. It's not the whole message of Jesus. Jesus didn't just come to save us from hell. He came just to bring us life here and now. 
And that you have to apply the whole narrative of scripture in Genesis. Well, what we did is look at Genesis 1 all the way to Revelation 22 and look how this, the, the story of the Bible is heaven being married to earth. That it all takes place here and, the, and the, when the uh, new creation comes, it's heaven comes and there's a new earth and everything's restored and we live and have physical bodies. So your view of how the world ends, your view of heaven shapes how you live here and now. Are you okay with that? Okay, maybe some of us. So, but then what we're gonna start today is Mark chapter one, verse 15. Mark chapter one, verse 15, it says this. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. So the next three weeks, we're gonna explore this one verse at what Jesus means by the time has come, the kingdom of God has come near, and repent and believe the good news. Because what we have to grasp is the message of Jesus. And this is Mark's summary statement for all of the teaching of Jesus. And this one verse has so many implications for daily life, and it's connected to the grand story of the Bible. So I thought we could begin um, with some prayer. Because I know that in our culture right now, your attention span is about 11 seconds. And you're used to like things being thrown at you, advertisements pop up, all of the stuff. And we don't have that. We have about 40 minutes together watching one guy talk. And I know that's hard because that's not what we're used to. Yes. Um, it, it sounded like that was right here. Did anyone else hear that? It's okay. I just sounded... Okay, I'm sorry. I literally, I literally thought it was like right here. It's totally fine. Babies are fine. It's cool. Let's pray. See, would you pray for me as I preach? I really want this. I want you to pray for me that I could preach for 11.15 what the Lord wants to say to 11.15. I'm so done trying to convince you of stuff. I want you to experience it for yourself. So Holy Spirit, would you come? Would you speak powerfully to us today? I pray that we would be aware of your presence and aware of your word. I pray that your scripture would plant inside of us deep seeds that we would as a church be people of scripture, that we would be obsessed with your scripture, that we'd wanna live your scripture and we wanna be obedient to your scripture, that we actually would wanna obey you, Jesus, because we love you. In a generation that's built on feelings, we wanna be people built on the word of God and truth. In a generation that, that will do what it likes in the moment, we wanna be built on uh, his history, grounded in history, the incarnational word of God that came through Jesus Christ. So Lord, we long for that. So would you, as part of our journey as disciples, empower us to follow you as disciples of Jesus through your word in Jesus' name, amen. amen. Jesus says the time has come. So the message today is all about this phrase, the time has come. Jesus uses this Greek word kairos, which means opportune time, the time, opportune, versus chronos in Greek, which means sequential time. So it's a very specific time. And every single Jewish boy and girl would have had lots of expectations and anticipation, and they would have known exactly what kind of time Jesus was referring to 2,000 years ago. They would have had history, they would have had narratives, they would have understood that it had implications for their life in that moment. Like on November 18th, 2013, when my wife woke me up at three o'clock in the morning and said, honey, it's time. I had in that moment narratives playing. I had seen movies that demonstrated exactly what needed to happen. I had prepared for that moment. There was a bag already packed. There were keys in the pocket in the pants that I was sleeping in. I was ready to go. When she said, honey, it's time, I knew she didn't mean it's time to wake up. It's time for breakfast. You got to go to work. I knew I had to get in the car as peacefully and fast as possible and drive her to Newport Beach where she would be delivering our son Ezra. Honey, it's time meant all sorts of things for me. In the same way, maybe a, a little different, uh, Jesus, what he's saying in this moment to his hearers is, honey, it's time. The time has come. And in their mind, in their story, in their narrative, since, narratives, since they were children, they would have anticipated what Jesus was saying. It would have been electrifying. They would have been listening, with, with, uh, st sitting on the edge of their seats, waiting for, for the things that were promised to be unfolding in their midst. This is what Jesus does when he says the time has come. Central to the belief of every Jewish boy and girl was the belief and knowledge that God would again act in human history like he did in Exodus. 
That in the, when Jesus comes onto the scene 2,000 years ago, there was this grand narrative that was awaiting every Jewish boy and girl. And so when Jesus says this phrase, it wasn't just you know, this, this introduction to the rest of the repent and believe message. This was part of the fulfillment of everything that they were longing for. So in order to understand the message of Jesus in its context, you have to understand the story of Israel in its context. So will you stay with me for like 15, 20 minutes? Because what I'm gonna attempt to do is give you the entire narrative of the Old Testament and why you have to understand the entire narrative of the Old Testament in view of the message that Jesus is announcing. And I know for many of you, you wanna check out because what you wanna know is what this means for you. And it has lots of implications, but I don't care what it means for you. I, I wanna tell you about Jesus. And the story of Jesus doesn't begin and end with you. Does that make sense? I've been realizing, this is a personal side note. I've been realizing a lot of the podcasts and books I'm digesting right now has me as a central storyline. Like someone once said, if you want to write a book that sells right now, you have to write practically how to help people change. And I was, that's pragmatism, right? That's why certain books will sell because of the fancy title and it's short and quick. But if we want to talk about the meaning of the person of Jesus and the primary message, it's not going to sell in our culture because we're only interested in ourself. I get it. That's what we've been groomed to. But I want to teach you the narrative. Are you guys good with that? So I'm passionate about this. I realize this. I, this changed my life. Because I grew up on a faith that was different than this. And then I had this theological awakening to the kingdom of God. And I saw scripture and I couldn't change my view. I realized, oh my goodness, this, everyone has to hear this. This is amazing. So I'm coming at it like that. And if it's just for me to remember it, great. Some of you might get it, but I don't really care. I really love this and I want you to get it. So it begins with the story of Israel and Israel's story begins in the book of Exodus where they're placed in Egypt. And if you wanna write down important moments, I have Egypt and you can write down Egypt. It's in Egypt that the defining moment for Israel takes place. In Egypt, the Israelites were enslaved to a military superpower known as Egypt and ruled by the king of Egypt, which was Pharaoh. And Pharaoh oppressed the Israelites. They were slaves. They were forced labor. They made bricks 24-7, and they cried out to the Lord in their slavery and oppression. They were oppressed and in slavery for 430 years. 430 years, the, uh, the Israelites were enslaved, and they cry out to God in their oppression. And God, it says in Exodus, hears the cries of the Israelites. He hears the cries of the oppressed. He always hears the cries of the oppressed. And he sends a messenger, Moses, to deliver the people of God out of the hands of Pharaoh. And you read this story in the book of Exodus of Moses coming in and confronting Pharaoh with 10 plagues. And each plague represents a different deity that Egypt worshiped. And each time it's like Egyptian God zero, Yahweh one, Egyptian God zero, Yahweh two, and he goes all the way through until they're freed and liberated. They cross the Red Sea, and God takes them from Egypt into another defining moment in the book of Exodus to Sinai. At Mount Sinai, which you should write down, this is the defining moment where the people of God who were once enslaved are now free. They're a free nation, and God comes down on this mountain. It's this epic ceremony, and the rabbis, the way they talk about Sinai is like this marriage ceremony, except with fire and earthquakes and lightning, which is super scary. You don't want that at your wedding ceremony. But this is a wedding ceremony with all of those things. And God says to the people, if you obey me fully, he says this in Exodus chapter 19. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests, intercessors. Priests are people who stand the gap between the people and God. They stand in between, representing God to the people and the people back to God. And you will be a, a holy nation, set apart from all other nations. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. And then he goes on to give the Ten Commandments and the rest of the Torah. Can you say Torah? Torah are the first five books of the Bible. Moses, they believe Moses wrote it. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Some of you have this memorized. That's great. Good job, Susie. <laughs> Taking points. That's a star, a gold star. 
Sinai if you obey me fully. And then history continues, and we read the Old Testament. Some of you are reading, us, reading the Bible with us right now, and it's crazy. The Old Testament's nuts, and it's amazing. It's the inspired word of God, but it's also so weird. What's going on? That's why I'm telling you the big narrative, okay, to capture what happens with Jesus, because a lot of us read the Old Testament, and we get stuck. What is God? Why is God so different than in the New Testament? What's going on? And if, you, if you're struggling, let me just give you one quick helpful insight. The revelation of God, the greatest revelation we have is Jesus on the cross. All their images of God have to be filtered through the lens of Jesus dying on the cross. Does that make sense? And that's hard for us, but that's the main revelation that God gives us. The ultimate revelation is Jesus on the cross. So uh, Sinai goes on. They, they, they wander in the wilderness. They start to enter into the promised land in Joshua, and then judges, they begin to disobey God. And eventually, they, they long for a king. So there's a king, Saul, and then David. David's the one true king. He's, he begins to expand the promised land, and then he dies. And Solomon, the son of David, comes into power the son of David, and secures the city of Jerusalem, which is God's holy city. And at the heart of the city is the temple that Solomon builds. And Solomon, the son of David, David builds this massive empire. And you read about it in Chronicles and in Kings that Solomon stockpiles weapons of mass destruction. He sends away chariots to other nations. He marries women uh, uh, and and he has 700 brides and wives to to create uh, political peace with other nations. He marries the daughter of Pharaoh. And if you're reading this as an Israelite, you're going, red flag, red flag, red red flag. This is not okay. It actually says that he builds the temple and his house with slaves. The nation that was once slaved, empowered to represent God on earth is now doing the same thing that was once done to them. Interesting. What God expects of power and privilege is to redirect that towards those without it. How are we doing? So this is the story of the Old Testament. Jerusalem is the place where David, the son of David, secures the borders with forced slavery. And then in 1 Kings chapter 9, oh, let's go there. I want you to just see these little moments that the writers of the Old Testament are like making sure that you understand something's going on in the heart, in the story, in the narrative of the Old Testament. 1 Kings chapter 9. I know you caught this when you read this. It says in verse 4, he, this is God speaking to Solomon. As for you, if... You walk before me faithfully with integrity of heart and uprightness as David your father did and do all I command and observe my decrees. I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever as I promised David your father when I said you shall reign, never fail to have a successor on the throne of Israel. Solomon, the son of David, if you obey my commands, if your heart is devoted to me. Go to the two chapters later, 1 Kings chapter 11. The author is so intentional about this. You have to see the grand narrative of what's going on. Verse four of chapter 11. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord, his God as the heart of David his father had been. And what you read for the rest is this story of Israel and its kings and its ways being following the ways of the world, the ways of other gods. But God was not done because God is faithful to his promise. This is my people. God's longing from Genesis 1 and 2 since the fall of Genesis 3 was to be with his creation, walking in loving union once and for all. But over and over again, we as a people continue to fail, to miss it. And when you read the story of the Old Testament, what the Israelites projected is that they were part of the story. We are Adam and Eve. We are Israel's struggle. That's where we find ourselves. We were disobedient. We were unfaithful to the covenant of God, but God remained faithful to his covenant to us. How good is that? So it goes from Jerusalem to Babylon. In Babylon, we read about another military superpower coming in to destroy Jerusalem, destroys the temple, takes Israel as captives once again, and sends them into exile back into Babylon, where they once again serve as slaves to a foreign military superpower. Sound familiar? And it's here in Babylon that the Old Testament prophets, and right before this, they begin to remind Israel of their vocation of priests and being holy. They remind Israel of their covenant with God and their marriage. And they begin to speak about a a God. Isaiah begins to write and prophesy about God doing a new exodus. 
And this new exodus will be about liberation. The old exodus had these stories of this deliverer and, and God doing a, a, a freeing Egypt, or sorry, freeing Israel from Egypt. But this new exodus will be much bigger. It will be like God will liberate all people from all oppressors, oppressors everywhere. And the Old Testament prophets begin to write about this time. And the language they use, the word they use is the age to come. And the day of the Lord. So all over the Old Testament, which we'll look at in just a second, these prophets begin to use their prophetic imagination to remind Israel of who they were. And they speak about a decisive moment in history, like in Exodus, where Moses and God parted the seas and brought the plagues and delivered Israel. That's going to happen again in human history, and Israel will be freed from their foreign oppressors. And all people everywhere will be freed from these things. And and it will usher in, by the day of the Lord, that moment in that day or on that day, a new age, a new age from this present age into the age to come. And the age to come will be marked by all these wonderful things, which we'll read about. But as the story continues, what happens is in the story of from, from Egypt to Sinai to Jerusalem to Babylon is that they're, they're freed from Babylon. And they're freed from Babylon and they go back to Jerusalem and they rebuild the walls and they rebuild the temple. But it's not like what the prophets prophesied about in the Old Testament. It's not like what was promised by all these prophet, prophets, prophecies. And what the the rabbis and what the people of of Israel begin to realize is that they're in some type of spiritual exile still. The new exodus hasn't occurred yet. And so the Old Testament prophets, Malachi ends, the Bible ends with this prophecy, a couple of prophecies of Malachi saying, the last book of the Old Testament, prophet Malachi says, it ends with this promise that God would send this messenger who will prepare the way of the Lord. He will be like Elijah and make the path straight. And the book of the Old Testament ends with Malachi, with that promise. And then there's 430 years of silence. 430 years of silence. You didn't see that coming. And then Luke begins with this prophecy, the first prophecy since Malachi, 430 years of silence, with this man named Zechariah who's been muted by the Lord, incarnating what's happened in Israel for 430 years. And once his son, who's born to Elizabeth, is born, his mouth opens up and he says, his name is John. And it begins this time where the prophecy of the Lord begins and then Jesus comes onto the scene with this message and says, honey, it's time. The time has come. The time he's referring to is the day of the Lord and the age to come, ushering in all the events that the people of God were anticipating in that moment. So this is the grand narrative, but let us look together real quick at what was expected. What was expected at the time of Jesus? And I want you to see this because it's so important for us to see the connection between the old to the new, and it all lines up in the grand narrative. How's that for history? Good? So Isaiah, let's just look at some of the prophecies about what the age to come would look like. And we're going to start with Isaiah and work our way to the right. Isaiah chapter 2. Isaiah 2, it says this, and I just want you to see it. So every time you see in the Old Testament, most of the times, in in the last days, in that day or on that day, depending on your translation, it's referring to this decisive moment known as the day of the Lord, which would usher in the age to come. So Isaiah chapter two, verse two. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord, of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. Many people will come and say, come, let us go to the mountain to the Lord, to the temple of God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will be judged he will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many people. They will beat their swords into plowships and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. That's good news, right? That the day of the Lord comes and the age to come ushers in this era of peace, of shalom. That's what this image is. That, the, that Israel would be sending out um, the, the knowledge of the way of life. The, the Torah will go out everywhere and people will walk in the paths of God and there would be no more war. Go to Isaiah chapter 11. 
Isaiah 11. If you have an app, that's fine. I just want you to have a Bible or a Bible. There's some Bibles in the back. Isaiah chapter 11. I want you to see this. So here's another prophecy. It says, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. Jesse was David's father. And from, uh, uh, from his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. This is, this is the true son of David right now. The prophecy is about the true son of David, David, who is Jesus. Why Jesus calls himself son of man or son of David. It's all reference to this. It's fascinating. But it continues. And here's a picture of what's going to happen on that day. The wolf will lie down with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf with the lion and the yearling together. The little children will lead them. The cow will feed, uh, feed with the bear. Their young will lie down together. The lion will, be, will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near a cobra's den. The young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy all of my holy mountain. And the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the water covers the sea. This is a, a prophetic image of what shalom and the restoration of creation looks like that all of creation works together for harmony. It's the restoration of Genesis 1 and 2, and it's led by this, this, the stump of Jesse, this, this, the throne of Jesse's continued through Jesus. How are we doing, guys? Isaiah, can we keep going on one more in Isaiah? Isaiah chapter 26, it says, verse 1, I'm gonna go fast. In that day, so it's referring to the age to come, the, the day of the Lord. Skip to verse 19. But your dead will live, Lord their bodies will rise. Let those who dwell in the dust wake up and shout for joy. Your dew is like the dew of the morning. The earth will give birth to the dead. Isaiah chapter 26 prophesies that when the day of the Lord happens, the dead will be resurrected and live. So Jews carry this idea that there was a resurrection of the dead. And they expected all those who were dead to rise again. Let me just make this quick point that there is no such thing as a disembodied age to come or heaven that we will have physical bodies in heaven. Does, do you guys know, everyone knows this, right? Like we, like we, we have a Greek mythology that influences our, our eschatology, the study of the end times. And most of us have been shaped by Aristotle, Plato, and this like Greek mythology, which believes that we're gonna float around in heaven playing harps in these Casper-like glowing bodies with wings. And that is so not at all what the Bible teaches. What the Bible teaches, Genesis 1 and 2, Revelation, all across the, the board is that we're gonna have physical bodies like this. We're, gonna, we're probably gonna steward creation like we did in Genesis 1 and 2. We're gonna work. We're gonna worship because it's all part of what God originally intended and it's so good. And that what Isaiah prophesies is that when the day of the Lord comes, there will be the dead who rise. Good? I'm messing some of you up. I know, it's okay. Let's see, what's the next one? Jeremiah, can we go to Jeremiah 31? Jeremiah 31, verse one, it says, at that time, what's the time you're referring to real quick? Just participate with me. Verse one, you can say uh, many of things. What time is he referring to? Age to come, that's close, Susie. The age to come, you can't be wrong, you are wrong. Um, the age to come or the day of the Lord. So when the prophets talk about that time, they're referring to this decisive act of God. The age to come or the day of the Lord. You guys good? So verse 31, uh, it's verse 31 of chapter 31. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the land to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them. Even God refers to himself as a husband. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, I will put my law in their hearts. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbors to say or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. So the day of the Lord will be marked by God giving us new minds. His law will be written on our hearts and in our minds. We don't have to learn because it will be a natural overflow. The Torah, the way of life that God intended, the way it was intended to be in the first place will be what we naturally do when the age to come happens. Is that good news? He will remember our sins no more. Is that good news? The age to come will be marked by the forgiveness of sins. How are we doing, church? Go to Ezekiel. You didn't see that coming. Ezekiel 36. I know you've been longing for the passage of Ezekiel to be on your, 
in your life. Let's go to Ezekiel, and we'll get to Zechariah in just a second. Um, Ezekiel chapter 24, or 36, chapter 36, verse 24. Some of you are like, it's about time, Darren. I've been waiting for the Old Testament to overflow us. I was going to show you my flipping skills. Just kidding. For I will, that's a dumb pastor joke. For I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle you clean, water on you, and you will be clean. So that's a, a sense of purification. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Then you will live in the land I gave. I promise to give your ancestors and I, you will be my people and I will be your God. I mean, this is the promise. And this is what Jesus still is doing. He takes our heart of stone that has been built with walls, abuse, pain, unforgiveness, anger, resentment, and through the power of his Holy Spirit empowers us to release all the collection of injustices we have and free our hearts of stone to become a heart of flesh. And God is doing that today. He's putting hearts towards our spouses. He's taking the stones that we have towards our spouses and bringing flesh. He's bringing a way of forgiveness when there's no possible way we can forgive. He's giving us new hearts. And this is what he comes to do today still. This is what will mark the age to come. As we walk into the age to come, we will be given new hearts of flesh so that we may feel deeply again. Not just the pain, resentment, and anger, but joy and hope and peace and love. How's that sound? Are we preaching? Daniel chapter 2, verse 44. I'm just going to go fast. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. Or, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. Age to come will be marked by God's kingdom ruling and reigning. Zechariah talks about in that day. And let's end with Joel chapter 2. Famous one because of Acts chapter 2. Joel chapter 2, it says this, verse 28. And afterward, I will pour out my spirit on all people. The sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. So what you read about in the Old Testament, all throughout the Old Testament, these prophets, was something known as the age to come and the day of the Lord. And the age to come, what was expected by every Jewish boy and girl were things that the age to come would be marked by. The age to come would be marked by healing, by peace, by shalom, by justice, by new hearts, by the forgiveness of sins, by new spirits, by the resurrection of the dead, the Holy Spirit and God's kingdom reigning over all all kingdoms on earth. There would be no wars. There would be no injustice across the board. The Jews essentially were expecting the cosmos to be changed. Which, by the way, is why, to this day, most Jewish people do not believe Jesus is the Messiah. All they have to say to you is, why are there still wars if Jesus was the Messiah? Because they were expecting something else. Every Jewish boy and girl we're expecting and anticipating God to bring an end to what's known as this present age. They were expecting the age to come to be marked by the day of Lord and there'd be no more sin, death, and destruction, but this new life would come in. But all of them had the same view of time, but they all had a different way of looking at it. So at the time of Jesus, there was a view of how to usher in the age to come. And I want you to stay with me. For one more minute, I'm gonna give you some historical background at the time of Jesus. At the time of Jesus, there were five primary ways that people believed the age to come would be ushered. And this is what they were called, the Psalms of Solomon. They believed God would, God's Messiah would come and begin this holy war. That's what was promised in the Psalms of Solomon. The zealots believed in what was called the holy warfare. And so they had this saying, say your prayers and sharpen your swords. So they stockpiled in their synagogues weapons and swords and, and, and spears because they believed when the Messiah came, he was going to defeat the Roman emperors at the time. And other zealots were before this. The Maccabees went against the Seleucids and the Greeks across the board and the Assyrians. So you, you had this view that the way we usher the age to come was through battling like David and Solomon before. The Essenes believed in a holy withdrawal. They separated themselves from the world. They lived as monastic, a monastic movement separated from the rest of Israel. They believed the way that God would usher in the age to come was by hiding away from the rest of the world. And then there were the Pharisees. 
The Pharisees were, were, are written as bad guys in the New Testament, but in the time of Jesus, they were the heroes. They believed that if you would just observe the Torah, that if, if every single Jewish boy and girl lived the Torah out for one day together, God would usher in the age to come. And so they added rules to protect you from breaking the 613 commandments in the Torah. They added another 1,500 rules on top of it. So you had to live out the 2,000 laws and regulations. And they missed the point. And then there were the Sadducees. The Sadducees were the aristocrats. They were the wealthy. They compromised themselves and accommodated to the political bosses. They built fortresses and palaces, and they, they, they were like the Herodians, the Herods of the time. And they believed that it was, it was going to happen. It wasn't necessarily anything that was going to happen, so just live, eat, drink, and be merry. Those were the five views, which we could relate to Christianity across the board. But Jesus does the unthinkable. They, the thing about all five of these, they had the same view of time. They had the same view of what God was going to do. Let me give you a quick slide that's going to help you. Now, this is going to get really technical, but I need you to see this because this is what happened with Jesus. So what people expected was this, that we lived in this present age. And this present age, as it was called, was marked by sin, death, Satan, rebellion, subjection to uh, the kingdom of darkness, Fear, anxiety, and sickness. Can we relate to that? All of those things? Pain, sin, all of that. And they believed, the Jewish community believed, all five of those different views believed that the day of the Lord would be marked by that center line. And the day of the Lord would happen and usher in this new age called the age to come. So there would be a distinct um, line in time where we live with the present age. And then once the day of the Lord happened, there would be the age to come, which we would be marked by all of those things we just read about. Healing, shalom, justice, peace, no sin, the resurrection of the dead, the Holy Spirit on all people. And we live in a New Testament reality. What you got to understand is all the stories of the Holy Spirit coming in the Old Testament were specific people for specific time for a specific purpose. It was never indwelling all people at once. It was kings and priests and the specially anointed. That's it. And so when Joel talks about the Holy Spirit coming on all flesh, male, female, slaves, free, it's, it's this move of God. And so what we see is that the Old Testament view or the view at the time of Jesus was that there, uh, there would be a day of the Lord that would end this present age and the, and the age to come would happen. But that's not what Jesus does. Jesus does this. Now, stay with me because this is a theologically dense, but it's important to understand where we, where we sit in time according to Jesus and according to the New Testament. And I'll, I'll, let, I'll tease out the practicalities in just a moment. What Jesus does is that first line as he enters into this present age where there's sin, destruction, pain, death, anxiety, fear, he brings the age to come into this present time and it coexists together until the second coming. And once the second coming happens, then all of creation will be restored and renewed. That's what we read about in Revelation 21 and 22. So we currently live in what theologians call the now meaning the kingdom of God, the age to come, the day of the Lord has come because see, we see it. We see that people are being healed. People are given new hearts. The Holy Spirit is falling on people. The Holy Spirit is dwelling with people. God is restoring his creation through his church that's come through Jesus and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And we live with the resurrection life with us here and now. But at the same time, there's death, there's sin, there's pain, there's anxiety, there's fear. So we live in the tension of the now and the slash not yet reality of the kingdom of God. So the not yet is obviously, I'm praying right now for a baby in the hospital that needs oxygen levels to go up before they come out. We know that's not God's desire and that won't exist in the age to come. But we live in this tension where we pray for people to be healed of cancer and they're healed. And we pray for people to be healed from cancer and they die. We pray for our friends to know Jesus because they don't. And that we pray for our families to be reconciled to us, but they're not. We live in the now and not yet. Our friends are getting divorced. Our friends are hurting. And we see the not yet reality. But God's desire is for us to live in the now, in the not yet reality, to usher in his kingdom life. So Jesus comes onto the scene and brings all of the heavenly resources, all that's promised in the Old Testament, all of God's reign and rule into your everyday ordinary life so that you're transformed here and now and keep being transformed into the age to come. And while you're here, you extend that age to come in partnership with Jesus, bringing the age to come wherever you go. 
How are we doing, guys? Do you see how your view of all of the kingdom and all of scripture matters today? Because if you don't believe God's gonna heal in prayer, then you won't pray for healing and healing won't come. And maybe God's looking for you to be that person of faith when everyone else has despair. How can we live with uh, people drowning in anxiety when Jesus wants to train us and free us from that addiction? Or I'm sorry, that anxiety. How can we free people from their addictions when we ourselves are addicted? Jesus wants to give us the resources here now to embody the age to come life in this present age. And this all connects in the scriptures. It all aligns to the life, death, ministry, message, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. What I want you to see, first and foremost, is that Jesus is the fulfillment of all scripture. So when you read about these these stories of the Old Testament, they're all pointing to Jesus. And when you get to Jesus, you have to look back and see the lens of the Old Testament uh, Testament through the lens of Jesus. And so we live in this reality of of Jesus being the fulfillment of scripture. And I know you want some resolution to this message, but I'm going to leave you at episode two two with a dot, 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 to be continued. Because you can't, you can't just think about these things theologically. You can't just think about these things in your mind. And that's one of the problems today, I believe, with the church, is we disconnect the incarnate message of Jesus to be something we can believe and just podcast and think of these are good ideas. Christianity has always been about embodying the message. It's always been about Uh, how this works itself out into everyday living. It matters what you do in your nine to five. It matters what you do with your kids as parents. It matters how you date. All of this will work itself out and reconstruct your life if you let it. What the, the, the enemy has done to the American church is said, just believe the right things about Jesus. Live the life how you wanna live and disconnect everything to this disembodied evacuation plan called heaven. Yeah, that's an indictment. We're not gonna do that, right? There's a story I was reminded of as I was praying this, for this sermon today, and it's so good. So I'm gonna read it to you, because I love it for so many reasons. It's Luke, it's the last chapter of Luke, chapter 24. So let's go there together. I, I'm gonna find it. It's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, Acts, Romans. Okay, Luke, 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 here we go. Verse 19. So Jesus has been killed on a cross. He's buried. And then he, 24, he's resurrected from the dead. And um, they don't see his body. And they're wondering about what's happened. They, they see angels and they say he's not here. And in Luke's gospel, that's what happens. And then what you have is this passage with a header that says, on the road to Emmaus. And Emmaus is seven miles from Jerusalem. And what you apparently have are some disciples of Jesus that watched him die. And now they're walking back home. And I, I think it's so amazing that, um, that this is a story that's included as one of the resurrection stories. It's so rad because it's so mysterious and funny. So you have a bunch of disciples, two guys, or, or maybe a husband and wife walking, and um, they're, t- they're, they're disappointed and they meet Jesus on the road to Emmaus, but they don't recognize him, okay? So pay attention to this, verse 19. Jesus says, what things, he asked, and they say, okay, about Jesus of Nazareth, they replied, he was a prophet, powerful in word and in deed before God and all people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. Because in their mind, what they understand is the narrative of the age to come. If you die on the cross, you're defeated by the Romans. You're cursed by God. They didn't understand that the Messiah had to die, okay? They had no theology for this, but wait, watch what happens. Um, and what is more is it's, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. Can I get an amen? Some of our women amazed us. Yes, they did. They went to the tomb early this morning because the dudes were sleeping in, but didn't find his body. I mean, that's true. You could see that. You could read that into there. Just saying, women, the women knew what's up. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. Let me just highlight this important phrase. 
because John, the gospel writer, not Luke, will make this massive emphasis because there's some bad theology out there called Gnosticism that wants to disembody Jesus' resurrection to be this spiritual thing. And what John will say over and over again, especially in the epistle of 1 John, he'll say, that which we have seen from the beginning, which we have heard and which we have touched with our own hands, we have to recognize that the kingdom of God in Jesus is a reality to be experienced, to be touched, to be seen, to be tasted. And that's what the world needs now more than ever. And these disciples didn't see him. Yeah, right? So he said to them, <clears throat> ready, this is Jesus' line, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Prophets, all the people we just listed and some more. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and all of the prophets to Malachi, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Do you see it? I, I really, I was reading that. I'm like, I wonder if some of the things that he shared were the scriptures that I shared to you. Weaving together the narrative of God. Did you know in 1 Kings that Solomon, the son of David, was the wrong son of David? I, I am the true son of David. Just weaving together the narrative of the Old Testament. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued as if he was going further, which I love that. But he had places to go. But they urged him strongly, stay, stay with us, for it's nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread and gave thanks and broke it and began to give it to them. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> took some bread, broke it, gave thanks, and gave it to them. Then, only when they're having communion with Jesus do they recognize who Jesus is. Their eyes were open and they recognized him. Then he disappeared in their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? And this is my prayer, that we would be people that experience the resurrected Jesus in our lives and our hearts would burn with scripture more than ever before because this generation needs to see that it all goes together. In a generation that wants to do everything based on feelings, we need to be people of the word of God. And when you see it all aligned, that Jesus is the fulfillment of Scripture. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit garden.church. Space for your presence to dwell and to move.